Uh, I invite you to take out your Bibles. You can turn to the book of Esther. It's on page 521 in your Bibles. Um, If you've been here for a while, you know that we've been doing this series of messages on this theme of exile. So we're kind of using it with a double meaning. Uh, We mean it in one sense to refer to uh, a period in Israel's history. It was very bad. So uh, the, 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 the Babylonian Empire invaded the city of Jerusalem. This is like the capital of God's people. And they took a whole bunch of people off uh, to live in, in Babylon, basically in like refugee camps there. And, uh, and they installed like a, like a puppet king. So the people who were left in Jerusalem were kind of under foreign occupation. And then, of course, the people who had been taken away and moved to, to Babylon, they were under foreign occupation. And it was a very confusing time for God's people. Like, how do we live in, in a culture where we're like the, the minority, we're maybe threatened by the dominant culture. And we've been thinking about that as a church and how that might relate to our day and time today. And what it's like to sometimes feel like we live in a world that doesn't understand our faith or maybe even um, doesn't like our faith or even hates us for some of the things that, that we believe and trust. And so we've been looking at that big picture. And today we're going to look at the story of Esther. And, uh, and Esther takes place, it's, it's about a hundred years after folks were taken into to Babylon. And already, some folks have started kind of trickling back to Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that the next few weeks. But what happened, you know, this was such a tumultuous time that not everybody just like went back to Jerusalem. People just kind of, Jews kind of spread out all throughout the Middle East. And they found themselves in like little communities all over the place. And, and the story of Esther looks at one particular community in the city of Susa, uh, in, in the Persian Empire. So this is actually, it's about 300 miles in the opposite direction uh, of Jerusalem from Babylon. So they're, they're off in this other space. And, and chapter 1 begins with a, a glimpse at King Xerxes of Persia. And we know that King Xerxes is a big deal because uh, in chapter 1, he's having a party. And the premise of his party is that he wants to uh, he wants to show everybody all of his stuff. He wants to show off his stuff. And it takes him six months. Okay? It's a six-month-long party. Every day he takes out something else, shows it off to people. And one of the things we find out about this party, there's a lot of drinking in this party. Um, there's like two whole verses devoted to just explaining how much everybody was drinking. And, uh, and so the king is probably pretty drunk at the six-month point. And... Um, he gets it in his head that what he really wants to show off now is his wife, Vashti. And so he calls for his wife to come and sort of show off for his guests. And in a moment that kind of makes my feminist heart glad, uh, Vashti says, forget it. I'm not coming out to show off for all your guests. And uh, it's, it's both sad and also kind of funny what happens next. Um, so Vashti refuses to come out when the king calls for her. And all the guys at the party like freak out. And they're like, oh man, this is so bad. Like, uh, what, if, what if all the women started like, thinking for themselves and spoke up for themselves? Like, this would be a catastrophe, right? So they're like, Xerxes, you got to do something, man. Like, you have got to stop this. And so uh, he, Xerxes banishes Vashti. You're gone. 
And they're like, not enough, we need more. And so he issues a decree as the king that all the women in the empire need to respect their man. Um, I don't know how well that that actually worked, um, but he issues this decree and everybody's kind of happy with it. And then we get to chapter 2. And chapter 2 begins, and uh, it turns out that Xerxes doesn't like being single. And so uh, he gets it in his head um, that he's going to run, like, it's almost like The Bachelor. I don't know if you're familiar with the show. Um, He's going to run, like, a, a version of The Bachelor. And he's The Bachelor, and he sends out his people to find, like, all the eligible young women in the in the kingdom. And uh, they all get brought in, and they all, I actually, I haven't seen The Bachelor, but I have like an idea of how it goes. So they bring them all to like the same house, and they're all like living there and hanging out. Um, so he does that with all these women. They, they come to this house uh, in the palace. Uh, they go through like beauty treatments. They probably learn about like Babylonian culture or uh, Persian culture, all this kind of stuff. And then uh, every night, a different woman spends the night with the king. And the idea is um, the woman who pleases him the most will become the queen. Um, Xerxes is, he's a, I think you'd call him a chauvinist sexist pig, I think is the official term uh, for this. Um, And so his officials go out and they're looking for women. And they find a woman named Esther. Uh, And Esther is a Jew. Uh, Her grandparents had been brought over from Jerusalem to Babylon, and they've ended up in Susa. Uh, And now she is an orphan. Her parents have died. And she's being cared for by her older cousin, Mordecai. And when these Persian officials come and say, hey, come with us for the bachelor... um, her cousin, Mordecai, tells Esther uh, this very strange thing. She sa- he says, um, don't let anyone know that you're a Jew. Uh, and so she agrees. And, uh, and she goes to the house, to the, the palace, and she does all the things she's supposed to do. She, uh, she goes through these beauty treatments. She eats the food. She learns the culture. And that whole year, she never tells a soul that she's Jewish. Finally, she gets her night with the king. And surprise, surprise, the king gives Esther the rose. Is that how, that's how it works, right? Yeah, the, the king gives Esther the rose. And this Jewish orphan becomes the queen of what was the most powerful empire of the day. And uh, you kind of look at this story and... And in some ways, it sounds like a real Jeremiah 29 moment, right? So we've been talking about this passage in the prophet Jeremiah. He's writing a letter to to all these folks who are living in exile. And he tells them basically, hey, even though you're the minority, don't like run away from the culture, but like engage it, get involved. Like we're not supposed to retreat. We're supposed to to help the the empire that we're a part of. And, uh, And we talked about Daniel last week. And how he did that, right? And so, like, you know, he got involved in the kingdom and all the rest. And in a way, Esther is like that, right? She's risen to this prominent position. She's no doubt very influential in this kingdom. She is a model of Jeremiah 29, right? Not retreating 
from that culture, but engaging it. Except there are some probably important differences between Esther and Daniel, if you think about it. Um, So you remember last week, Daniel and his friends, they were pushed, right, again and again by by Babylon to compromise on their faith. And even with stuff that maybe seems kind of small, like the food stuff, you remember they, they were... They were given food that wasn't kosher. It was important to them. They weren't going to compromise. That, that mattered to their faith, so they weren't going to eat it. They risked their lives not to eat the food. Esther, on the other hand, seems to have no problem eating the food. Or like Daniel and his friends, like they, they refused to break God's law, you know, so like they wouldn't bow down to these idols, they wouldn't worship other gods. You know, it mattered to them that they not break God's law. Esther is kind of breaking God's law all over the place, right? So uh, she's sleeping with a man she's not married to. Uh, she then marries a man who does not at all share her faith. So here you got Daniel, right, who's like, like, at every turn he's like risking his life to stay true to his faith. Then you have Esther, who's like actively trying to hide her faith. It's a little different. This is where things get interesting. It's chapter 2. Esther is at her big wedding party. And uh, while she's no doubt eating non-kosher food, and getting ready to sleep with this uh, man who doesn't share her faith, um, the camera sort of shifts over to cousin Mordecai. And it just so happens that Mordecai is standing by the gate outside the palace, and uh, he overhears two Persian officials plotting a coup to kill the king and replace him with somebody else. And so Mordecai Quick goes and tells Esther about it. And Esther goes and tells Xerxes about it. And this is what we read. This is chapter 2, verse 23. When the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. And this is important. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. All right, now we get the villain. Haman shows up. Okay, nasty Haman. Haman is not a good guy, um, but he's an important guy. So he's like the top advisor uh, to the king of Persia. And he's so important that the king issues a decree that whenever he walks past you, you need to kneel. So wherever he went, people would kneel when he walked past, except for one guy. You want to guess who wouldn't kneel for Xerxes? It was Mordecai. It was cousin Mordecai who wouldn't kneel for him. And this makes Haman so mad. I mean, it just drives him crazy to see everybody kneeling except for Mordecai. Just imagine him just kind of staring at Haman as he walks past, hands on his hips like, yeah, I'm not kneeling for you. And it drives Haman crazy. And he's talking about it with his buddies one day. And he finds out that Mordecai is a part of this little ethnic community called the Jews. And he develops this nasty plan. And he goes to the king, and we read about it in chapter 3, verse 8. And Haman says to the king, he says, you know, there is a certain people 
dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all the other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And incredibly, the king issues just that very decree that all the Jews in the whole kingdom should be killed on a date a few months away. It's at this point that Mordecai hears about the plan. And he goes to Esther. And he says, Esther, this is really bad. Um, We're all going to die unless something happens. You've got to talk to the king. And Esther says, she's like, cousin, I, I know it's important. I can't do it. Um, there's this rule in the kingdom you don't understand. I can't just walk up to the king and talk to him about whatever I want to. He needs to ask for me. If you go to the king without being invited, the, the law says you need to be killed. I mean, I can't, I can't risk it. He hasn't asked for me in a long time. He's kind of lost interest in me. I can't just prance up there and talk to him about something as important as this. He's going to kill me. And this is where Mordecai gives the most famous speech in the whole book. It's chapter 4, verse 14. And he says this to Esther. He says, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. So he's hopeful that in the long run, this won't be the end of the Jews. But he says this. He says, but you and your father's family will perish. So, I mean, hope might come down the line, but at least in the near term, it's going to be really bad. And then he says this, And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this? Who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this? This is... This is the closest the Bible ever comes to saying uh, carpe diem, seize the day. Um, Mordecai is saying, all this time, all these things that came together that you could rise to this position of influence, you are perfectly positioned right now to speak up for justice. Uh, You can stand up for what's right. Who knows but that you have come to this position for such a time as this. What he's saying is, Esther, what if it's not a coincidence? What if it's not a coincidence that of all people, you would be the person right here, right now, who is able to do something about this injustice? What if it's not a coincidence? I think it's a question for all of us, right? What opportunities do we have in our lives? What position are you in right now? Is it possible that there is a reason that you are in in that middle school, in that class, in that circle at recess, that you could be the one who speaks out against a bully? What if it's not a coincidence? Is it possible that there's a reason you moved into that neighborhood, on that street next to that family, 
That you would be the one who would help them in a time of need. That you'd be the one who would share your faith with them. What if it's not a coincidence? That's when Esther gives her famous reply. And she says, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Not such a pushover anymore, is she? Sometimes it's pretty risky to stand up and do the right thing, isn't it? I mean, isn't it way easier just to shut our mouths? Isn't it way easier just to look the other way? Not to rock the boat. Not to step out of our comfort zones. Isn't it way easier just to hope that somebody else is going to speak up? Or that somebody else is going to reach out? Or that somebody else is going to do the right thing? It's so much easier. Esther counts the cost and decides that she is willing to pay the price. If I perish, I perish. Then things get even more complicated. It's the night before Esther is going to ask for Xerxes' help. And conveniently, Haman goes for a stroll right past Mordecai again. Of course, again, Mordecai doesn't bend down on one knee for him. And this time, it is, it's a bridge too far. And Haman loses it. And he's complaining about it to his wife that night. And she says, you've got to do something about this. This is not right. And so he sets up, he sets up a, a long pointy pole out in front of his house. And uh, he decides the next morning, he's going to ask the king to have Mordecai hanged and killed on that pole. It's looking very grim. But then we move to the palace of the king. It's the same night. King Xerxes is having trouble sleeping. It's before the day and age of Ambien, so he needs to find some other way to fall asleep. And so, uh, no offense uh, to history people in the room, but he asks that uh, his servant read a history book for him. Uh, and that will put him to sleep. And so, uh, he's having the official history of the kingdom read back to him. And as he does this, um, he hears the story. You want to guess what story he hears? He hears about that time that Mordecai heard about that coup attempt and saved the king's life. And Xerxes is like, hey, what did we ever do for that guy? Like, that guy was great. We should do something for him. And so he, uh, he calls for Haman. Right? So this is the morning that Haman is going to ask to have Mordecai killed. And he calls for Haman. He's like, hey, Haman, um, what, should it, what should the king do if somebody has been really awesome to him? Like if somebody's like just really hooked me up, been really loyal and great, like how should I thank him? And Haman, of course, thinks that the king's talking about him. He's like, well, you know, king, uh, you know, you've been all right. I, I mean, I guess maybe a parade. I think a parade would be cool. That'd be a nice way to say thank you. And the king's like, that's a great plan, a parade, we'll do a parade. He's like, all right, here's the plan. Haman, you set up the parade, get a nice horse. I got this guy I really need to thank. His name is Mordecai. Why don't you lead him around the city today? Show him off to everybody. To his credit, Haman does it. He leads Mordecai in this parade. 
And uh, as bad as the day's been going for Haman, he's still excited because he's got a party to go to that night. So the night of the parade, he's got a party to go to, and he's really pumped because uh, the queen invited him, and it's just the three of them. It's the king, the queen, and Haman. This is like a big deal to get invited to this. And the premise of the party is that Esther wants to ask the king something. So the king says, Esther, you know, what do you want? You know, I'll give you anything. And chapter 7, verse 3, Esther makes her request. She says, O king, if I have found favor with you, and if it pleases your majesty, this is my petition. Grant me my life. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. She says, you know, if it was just a slavery thing, I wouldn't have said anything, but it's really bad. And King Xerxes, he figures it out. And he figures out that Esther is a Jew. And that the order has been given to kill all the Jews. And King Xerxes, whose memory is not very good, asks Queen Esther, he says, who is he? Who is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther points across the table. It was Haman. Vile Haman. Awkward. Um, Haman's having a really bad day. It's about to get worse. Um, in kind of a twisted irony, the king orders that Haman be put on the pole that Haman had set up that day to kill Mordecai. And instead of killing Mordecai, the king elevates Mordecai, makes him a special advisor. And then he issues a decree that has the effect of saving all the Jews' lives. That's the story of Esther. Kind of crazy, right? A couple things I want to point out to wrap up. Um, you might have noticed it when I retold it. Um, and some of you know enough, you, maybe you've studied this book before, you know what I'm going to say. Um, how many times did God get mentioned in that story? Zero. Zero times. God is never mentioned in the whole book of Esther. In fact, there's not really anything even particularly religious in the whole book. There's no prayers. There's no worship. There is a reference to fasting at one point. It's the closest that we get. A whole book of the Bible that forgot to mention God. You think it was an accident? I actually don't think it was an accident. I think this book is trying to show us something. It's trying to show exiles something. See, we sometimes seem to think that if God is working around us, it's going to be all big and obvious, right? Parting the Red Sea, pillar of fire, walking on water, some miraculous healing. Maybe at God's stories we think it's only a God story if it's some amazing miracle or some stunning intervention or some incredible break with the laws of nature. We look for something entirely obvious like God's handwriting in the clouds or like an audible voice from the skies. But the truth is God seldom works in such big and obvious ways. More often than not, God works through all kinds of little things and behind-the-scenes things. 
And think of the story of Esther. Think of all the little pieces that had to come together to save God's people. Even some very unpleasant pieces, I might add. If Xerxes wasn't a chauvinist demanding to show off his wife, he never would have married Esther. If Mordecai hadn't been standing at the gate at just that very moment, he wouldn't have heard about the coup attempt. If Xerxes hadn't forgotten to say thank you right when it happened, or if Xerxes hadn't had trouble sleeping on that particular night, See, we look for God in all these big and like obviously positive things. But the truth is, God often does His best work through small things. And subtle things. And even things that to our view are not obviously good. Doesn't mean God's not working. Second thing, um, the last point I want to make. If you were somebody who was here last week... Um, you heard about Daniel. Brave Daniel. Who always does the right thing and always stands up for his faith and everything always works out for Daniel. And maybe you thought to yourself, where did they get this guy from? I can't relate to this guy at all. I try to follow Jesus, but I'm like all inconsistent, I'm kind of flaky. If you're thinking to yourself, you know, if that's what God needs, then God is never going to be able to use me. Well, I'm glad we've got the book of Esther. Because I think Esther is a reminder that God can work even through people like us. Even though the situation is much less than ideal. You know, we tend to go to the Bible thinking that it's going to give us a bunch of examples of how we should live our lives. Like each page is going to be another story of some amazing, perfect, heroic Christian. Like, um, like each page is going to give us this pristine picture of just how we're supposed to live. Have you ever read the Bible? The Bible is mostly full of stories of seriously flawed people, people like Esther, who God finds a way to work through anyway. See, there's this common misconception about the Christian faith that the point of the Christian faith is to be better than everybody else. We're going to be more pious, and we're going to be more moral, and we're going to be more kind and more just, and that's how God is going to be able to use us. We're all going to be basically like Daniel. It's not really the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible comes to its climax in Jesus who said he came for the sick, not the healthy, who said he came to call sinners to repent, not the righteous. He's the one who says that his power is made perfect in weakness. In Jesus, the Bible teaches us that it's not our strength that saves us, it's Jesus. It's not our moral perfection, it's Jesus. It's not our faithfulness, it's Jesus. The story of the Bible is not the story of our perfect courage and conviction. Instead, it is the story of people who lack perfect courage and perfect conviction, but who God saves anyway. 
Ours is a story of people who know they can't get it all right, but who've put their faith in the one who can. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminders like this story of Esther, that even in situations that are pretty complicated and messy, where we maybe have made decisions that we regret, um, Lord, we thank you that that doesn't stop your plan to save your people. And uh, that you just find a way. You again and again, you find a way to save your people. Now, Lord, as we are going to be leaving this place in a few minutes and going into a world that often feels very messy, um, where sometimes it seems like you never get mentioned and we don't notice you much, we pray that you would give us assurance, even in this time and this place, that you are a God who is with us. Not far, but very near. In Jesus' name, amen.